Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This teaching is called The World's Best Hope and is the third teaching in our study through the book of Jeremiah. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on October 10th, 2021. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks so much for joining us as we begin and continue this teaching series of the prophet Jeremiah from the Old Testament. Uh, we've been in this series for about three weeks, and we really want to enter into this story to try to figure out how to make sense of Jeremiah's life and the words that he spoke to these people who are in crisis. We want to try to uncover what Jeremiah's story means for our story today. And so if you've been following along with us, you've heard Mark, Molly, and myself talk about how messy this book is. It's hard to figure out sometimes who is speaking. Is it God? Is it Jeremiah? It's hard to follow the timeline. We're we're jumping back and forth in time between kings. It's hard to keep things straight. It's hard to understand some of the cultural references and metaphors because we just don't live in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. So one of the ways that we've been trying to visualize the story of Jeremiah is by leaving something on this canvas each week. As we read Jeremiah, what pictures begin to emerge of God, of the course of history, of the trajectory of our own lives? And so we've been putting something here on this canvas. So the first week, uh, we talked about this word covenant, this notion that Yahweh, Israel's God, had promised to be present with and protect Israel as long as they followed the instructions that they had received about living according to this agreement, this covenant, that their ancestors had made with God long ago. And so this red line here on the canvas represents that. This covenant was a promise to live according to the way God intended our lives to be. These promises to look after the at-risk, widows, orphans, immigrants. Promises to have a safe society, no stealing or killing or violence. Promises to live as if God was at the very center of the community. And sometimes it's easy to see how this works out. The the covenant line is clear. It's easy to see what we're supposed to do. But other times it's much harder. It feels like maybe God isn't even there. Maybe isn't holding up to that end of the deal. And so last week, Molly talked about this prophetic cycle that Jeremiah introduces with these broad strokes across the canvas. How Israel walked away from the the fresh, pure waters of the covenant represented by the blue at the bottom. And how they begun to dig their own holes in the ground, these cisterns that were intended to hold water. But the ones that Israel built were all broken. And so they seeped into the purity of the covenant and muddied it and made it impure. How they replaced these containers that God meant for them to have with their own that were broken and just couldn't do the same job. So Jeremiah's job, as Molly taught, the prophetic task was to wake people up to the reality of their situation, that things were not the way they were intended to be, to help them grieve their mistakes, and then, and only then, hopefully learn and grow. 
But Jeremiah's message was rarely, if ever, appreciated in his time, as we're going to see painfully throughout this series. When Yahweh says in chapter 1, as we studied together a couple weeks ago, See today, I appoint you over nations, over kingdoms, to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. That's not good news if you're the nation or kingdom getting plucked up or pulled down, destroyed and overthrown. To those in power, God's word to Jeremiah is treasonous. So a few weeks ago, Apple TV just launched this new series called Foundation, based on the science fiction novels of Isaac Asimov. And I got to say, so far, I've watched all three episodes. It's pretty brilliant. Uh, The gist of the show is this, uh, that a phenomenal mathematician has arisen named Harry Seldon, and he's developed this theory that predicts the fall of this empire, which has ruled for centuries. And Seldon's prediction is that the empire is dying and that civilization will soon be lost for 30,000 years. And so, of course, when the empire hears about what Seldon has predicted, they consider killing him for this dangerous prophecy. But instead, they exile him to the farthest reaches of the galaxy to start an alternative community called the Foundation, which will allow humanity to emerge from the ashes of the empire's collapse. And if you're interested, if that sounds interesting to you, I I encourage you to go check it out. You can actually pause right now and just open up a new tab in YouTube and check out one of the trailers uh, that we're going to show in our in-person gatherings. Um, But I promise the show is worth watching. Uh, One line from the show that I want to share says, I realized it's not the fall that they're afraid of, they being the empire. It's the chance that your plan, Harry, will actually succeed. It takes more power to build than to burn. And I want to build. I'm not sure that I could think of a more perfect show to watch while we're studying Jeremiah. But there is this difficult aspect of the show that I have to warn you about, uh, which the creators and writers freely admit. The show is essentially a thousand-year story. The the whole scope of the narrative takes place over a thousand years going back and forth. And so I was listening to an interview with one of the writers named David Goyer who said that there was at least one character in the show who was not played by an actor. And the character is time. Throughout the story, there are these time jumps. 40 years forward, backwards 400 years. And he said that when he was pitching the show to Apple, he he simply said that the audience would have to embrace time as a main character in the show. And to be honest, when I heard him say that, I thought that is the exact same challenge that we face with studying Jeremiah. Time is a character in God's story. It's a character in Jeremiah's story. So, if we're willing to buckle in occasionally to make some time jumps in the story so that we can understand what's happening in Jeremiah, we'll have a much better time understanding and appreciating what Jeremiah was saying to his contemporaries. 
And just so you know, today is one of those days. So before we can begin Jeremiah's story in chapter 7 today, this, this passage that we are going to study, we have to jump back in time roughly 600 years into the Exodus story. So, 600 years earlier. In the Exodus story, when God brought the Israelites up out of slavery from Egypt and led them to Mount Sinai to give them these instructions called the Torah, one of the things that God revealed to Moses on the mountain were the plans for this tent called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this holy space enclosed by a canopy or a tent where God would ultimately live. It was a way for Yahweh to dwell among Israel at the center of their community. And the nice thing about tents, if you go camping, is you know that they're portable. And that's how this covenant with Israel began. It, it begins in the Torah with God making this promise to live with Israel, to be in this tabernacle and be their God. Now fast forward 200 years. After Israel had moved out of the wilderness into the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, God's presence is said to rest at a place called Shiloh. And it's in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that we hear a story about a priest named Eli who worked at Shiloh. And we also hear about his corrupt sons. The story says the sons of Eli were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord or for the duties of the priests to the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling, and with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all the fork brought up the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So, whatever you know about sacrifices and boiling pots, basically, Eli's sons were robbing God and the people of Israel from their sacrificial meal that they had come to Shiloh to eat. They were abusing their religious office. And so God tells this young prophet and priest named Samuel that Eli's priestly dynasty, the legacy for his children, would eventually come to an end because of this abuse of power. And shortly after this, in the Bible, we, we read this story about the Philistines, these enemies of Israel, who came and defeated Israel in a battle, and they took the Ark of the Covenant, this box that represented God's presence at Shiloh, and they took it away. And it's at this point in the story that some scholars would say that Shiloh, this place where God's presence had come to dwell, was destroyed. Fast forward another 60 years. We're now in the age of kings. Towards the beginning of this one particular career of a king named Solomon, uh, he began to replace the idea of a portable shrine, the tabernacle, with a permanent temple located in Jerusalem. And Solomon spared no expense executing the vision that his father David, who had lived before him, dreamed up. 1 Kings 5, 13 says, King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. Now, this idea of conscripted labor 
is actually the same word used to describe the kind of labor that Pharaoh had the Israelites doing when they were enslaved in Egypt. Exodus 1 verse 11 says, So they, the Egyptians, put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Both verses use this Hebrew word mas, which means forced labor, slavery. And so even though Solomon is building a place for God to live, he uses the same tactics as Pharaoh to get the work done. Under the kings of Israel, Israelites had become slaves again in their own land. And after this temple is constructed and Yahweh inhabits it, Solomon turns around and selects a high priest to run the temple named Zadok. And in doing so, he rejects another candidate named Abiathar. This is how 1 Kings chapter 2 says. Says, So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. This is the moment where Solomon fulfills the punishment against Eli and the priests of Anatoth. Now, if you remember or if you haven't seen uh, the first teaching that we did in Jeremiah chapter 1, we learned that at the beginning of Jeremiah, the book tells us that Jeremiah was the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anatoth. This entire story it would seem, of the tabernacle and the temple and priests and kings are all wound up into the story of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is descended from these priests who were rejected by Solomon, descended from Eli. Jeremiah is a person that knows the danger of believing in one place for Yahweh to dwell. So when we get into Jeremiah's story, the movement of God's presence has gone from portable to permanent. The activity of Israel's kings have become increasingly oppressive. The politics of Jerusalem's king begins to spin the idea that because Yahweh lives in the city, nothing bad can ever happen to them. And so after all of these time jumps from the tabernacle in the wilderness to Shiloh to the Jerusalem temple, Jeremiah steps into the story. And this is what he says in chapter 7. The message that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Stand at the gate of Yahweh's temple and call out there this message and say, Obey the word of Yahweh, all people of Judah who enter these gates to worship Yahweh. Amend your ways and habits so that I may dwell with you in this place. Don't entrust yourselves to the lie which says, The temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh is here. But if you truly amend your ways and habits, if you really accomplish justice amongst neighbors, you don't oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, the widowed, you don't shed innocent blood in this place and you don't follow after other gods to your own detriment, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave to your ancestors for all time. 
So Jeremiah is commanded by God to go stand at the temple entrance, the busiest location in this place where God's presence was thought to dwell. And God says to tell them, you're not keeping your end of the deal. You claim that this is my temple, my house, but your lives and your politics and your religious habits don't reflect it. And Jeremiah goes on. He says, but look, you are currently depending on the lie to no avail. Are you seriously stealing, killing, being promiscuous, swearing falsely, burning incense for Baal, this Canaanite god, and chasing after other gods, and then coming to stand before me in this house which is called by my name? And then you declare once you're here, we will be rescued all the while committing these atrocities. This house, which is called by my name, has become a hideout for robbers to you. But even now I am watching. Jeremiah must inform the people that their lives are built entirely on a lie. A politically ideological lie that said that it didn't matter what happened in society, what society looked like, how unfair or violent or corrupt or selfish or idolatrous the people behaved, we can just go to God and it'll be okay. They went to this golden-plated temple supported by the royal ideology to soothe themselves from all of the terrible things that they did the rest of the time. And it's this passage, actually, that Jesus quotes when he goes off on the religious practices that are going on in the temple during his day. The den of robbers in the house of prayer. Both Jeremiah and Jesus are both clear that people who are committed to deception and power-mongering should not be able to hide out behind their religion to do their dirty work. Eugene Peterson writes in the book Run with the Horses, The right place and the right words are not the life of faith, but only the opportunity for a life of faith. They can just as easily be used as a respectable front for a corrupt self. The Israelites had been misled into believing that Yahweh was locked into living with them and protecting with them because the temple was in their city. Which is why Jeremiah must remind them that this is false, based on their own history. Jeremiah says, Indeed, go down to my place at Shiloh, where I previously caused my name to dwell. See what I did to it because of the uselessness of my people Israel. I will do this, I will do to this house that is called by my name, on which you are currently depending, the very thing I did at Shiloh. And I will banish you from my presence, says God. Jeremiah's message to the worshipers at the temple is that if you don't correct course so that the rest of your lives match up what you claim to do here, 
I'm going to destroy my own temple. I'm going to move out of this place just as I did at Shiloh. You see, the kings like Solomon and the rest of the kings that came after him had had put this royal ideology onto the temple and had convinced many Israelites that believing that Yahweh's temple supported and upheld their political empire. That it didn't matter what they did because God had chosen them. And so they had enmeshed their religious hope with their political hopes of the Jerusalem kings going all the way back to Solomon and David. And Yahweh calls this, in this temple sermon of Jeremiah, the lie. And the people believed the lie to the extent that they were worshiping other gods in the city temple because they didn't think anything could happen. Yahweh actually says and describes this practice in the passage to Jeremiah. He says, Now you, Jeremiah, do not pray for these people and do not lift up a cry of lament for them because if you pray, it won't reach me. I'm not going to hear it. That's a terrifying thought. Haven't you seen what they're doing in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead the dough to make raisin cakes for the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to the other gods so that I am enraged. We, we actually have found uh, in archaeological sites uh, what these raisin cakes would have looked like. And they're actually exactly what you think those little Debbie cakes. Just kidding. But what Jeremiah is describing here is this sort of family affair. And Yahweh says, is it really me they are provoking to anger? Isn't it themselves to their own shame? Yahweh says, don't bother praying for these kinds of people. They're committed to doing things their own way, their their own path to their shame. Not only does God say that Israel's prayers won't be heard, but God tells them to stop offering sacrifices, the, the primary way of connecting with God at the temple. Yahweh says of hosts, the God of Israel, take your whole burnt offerings, these sacrifices that were supposed to be completely consumed by fire. Take your whole burnt offerings on the altar and eat the meat. For I did not speak to your ancestors, nor I did command on the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt on matters of burnt offerings or sacrifices. Instead, I commanded them about this matter. Heed my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people. So walk only in the path that I decree to you so that things will go well for you. But they didn't obey or attune their ears. They followed their own plans. And in the stubbornness of their useless decision-making, looking backward, not forward. Since the days of their ancestors, since the days their ancestors left the land of Egypt until this very day, I sent to you my servants, the prophets, early and often, but they wouldn't obey me. They wouldn't attune their hearing. They became inflexible and did even more evil than their ancestors. Say to them, Yahweh says, This is the nation that doesn't obey the voice of its God, Yahweh, and won't accept an education. 
truth is lost. It is cut off from their lips. The people of Israel, deceived by this royal ideology, were committed to a path of looking back, not forward. They had become inflexible. And they assumed that God was just as inflexible as they were. God couldn't abandon this nation. God wouldn't let any harm befall us. We're God's chosen people. Their refusal to learn from the past, to accept the reality that their actions had consequences, meant that truth was no longer accessible to them. They couldn't hear it. The last bits of chapter 7 and and the first three verses of chapter 8 actually describe in very gruesome detail the final days of the kingdom of Judah in, in Jerusalem if they don't correct course. The destruction of the city, of the temple, of many of the people. And I don't know about you, but I can't imagine how this would go down today if someone showed up at church and said these things. Because the truth is that so many people who claim to be God's people today have also been taken captive by political ideology, both on the right and the left. Lee Camp, in his book, uh, Scandalous Witness, which I'd encourage you to check out sometime, describes exactly this process about how Christians have given up hope in God's kingdom and granted that hope or entangled that hope to America. He he goes through this whole list, and I'm just going to read some of the quotes, and I'm not going to mention the names, but from 1801 to our present time, Things like this have been said by American politicians of every rank and party. The United States is the world's best hope. The preservation of the Union is the last best hope of the earth. At last the world knows America as the savior of the world. We must keep first America in our hearts. We must always keep faith in America's destiny. That one nation under God must be the hope and the promise and the light and the glory among all the nations of the world. And now together, on eagle's wings, we embark on the work that God and history have called upon us to do. With full hearts and steady hands, with faith in America and each other, with a love of country and a thirst for justice, let us be the nation that we know we can be. It doesn't matter who said these things. It matters that so many followers of Jeremiah's God, of Jesus, also tend to believe them. Jeremiah's message at the temple was that the people of God need to unspool their theology from their political ideology. They need to start letting their theology move them into an alternative politic that Lee Camp suggests should be neither right nor left nor religious. The Israelites had made the temple, this gold building full of glory that the monarchy had built and funded into an idol of sorts. 
again, Lee Kemp says this about our situation. We Christians in America have too often falsely assumed that the nation state cannot be an idol. But idolatry is not merely an act of bowing down, of falsely making a self-conscious religious act. Central to the practice of idolatry is giving ultimate status to some power that does not rightly wield such status. It is a practice that shapes our allegiance, our appetites, and our desires. It is a practice that engenders our sense of security, our sense of neighborliness, our sense of who our enemies are, and our sense of where to build walls and when to build them. It's a sad state of affairs. Insufficient data may be found among Christians to confirm that Christianity is true, and consequently, we Christians may be among the primary players responsible for the rapid rejection of Christian faith in the West. No empire lasts forever. Not even America. The question for us as a community is, are we in any way threatened by Jeremiah's message at the temple? Have our hopes, which only God can bear, come to rest on a political party or personality? Have we reacted in such a way to Jeremiah's message, to this blunt confrontation of our distorted theologies and ethics and politics in a negative or positive way? You see, the covenant with Yahweh in the Old Testament was not contingent on who claimed to be in charge or where the Israelites lived but it was contingent on how they acted in the world. And the same is true for us. Do we have the courage to honestly look at our, our lives, our actions, our words, our politics, and honestly assess whether we're living the lie? Have we passed the point where truth is dead to us, where total failure is the only way forward? Or is there hope that we can change? Would you pray with me? God, I am grateful for the words of Jeremiah to shake us from our complacency, from our dependency on any ideology that claims that there is hope outside of you. May we live into our calling, into this covenant that you have asked us to be a part of, that, that we work with you in the world not necessarily as aligned with a politic, but becoming a new kind of politic that lives to see your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that we find new creative ways to bring that into the world that are not dependent on who is in charge at any given moment. May we live courageously and creatively into that covenant. 
and may we have the eyes to see when we have put our faith in things that ultimately cannot bear the hopes of the world. We ask for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we enter into this time that we do each week called Common Meal, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And when we enter into this time, when when we come and gather around a table, whether it's juice or bread or wine, we come in, in many ways, as Paul says, to confess the Lord's death until he comes. In many ways, it's an act of allegiance. It's, it's a belief in an ideology that none of the people who wield power in our world today or who will wield power in our world tomorrow have the ultimate authority or capability of bringing the reality that Jesus talks about in the New Testament. This new way of being human, this as on earth as it is in heaven way of living. And so, very simply, we invite you to take these elements, the body and the blood of Jesus, as a reminder that our politic is a way of suffering. Our politic is a way of emptying ourselves. Our politic is the way of the cross, of becoming humble, obedient servants who help, who give up privilege in order that others may have life. May that be our guiding way of life. May that be our guiding ideology. And may we live into that new covenant that Jesus brought about in this meal. Whenever you're ready, we invite you to either pause the video now or take the common meal as the next song place. If you have any questions about this teaching or are looking at different ways to engage in community here at Crossings, you can reach out to us at administration at crossingsknoxville.com. If there's anything we can do to take care of you as you're listening from a distance, please let us know. Shalom.